0: Live from Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 2, The Tourist vs. King Kong, 1933. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of this film vault, Nathan Marchand. But I am not alone. I am not only here with my intrepid producer, Jimmy, from NASA. I am here to discuss one of the greatest movies ever made with some of my favorite people. No, Jimmy, you didn't watch it with us, so you're not one of my favorite people. How rude. (laughs) We're still working out the kinks in the relationship here, I'm sorry. If you, if you did, you listen to the first episode, he's fact checking me and all that kind of stuff
1: all the time. Well, hey, I, I have to f- uh, take care of my podcast partner in crime all the time. So,
0: yeah, I, I understand Jimmy's uh, plight there. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, I think introductions are in order here since uh, the two of you have already been talking. Oh, hello. Uh, this is Timothy Deal. This is Nick Hayden, aka Timoteo.
2: Oh, we're gonna go there. Okay, <laughs> Nikolai Borczewski. We just had back. the
1: one. We just had the our one hundredth episode of our podcast, The Royal Trains of Thought, not long ago. So those are fresh on our minds.
0: Yeah, the I, I listened to that one. It's it's quite epic. I think my favorite character is that innkeeper dude with the army of debt collectors. Yeah, he was all right. You had one heck of an adventure, and uh, didn't you have me? You had me on actually for episode one hundred one. So did the podcast your sentient podcast bring you here all of the tardis uh something like that
1: well actually we recorded last episode uh here on monster island vaults and you said you had some food for us
0: yes yeah pizza and popcorn i think is what i promised we just hung around yeah Yeah. basically
1: yeah in case people don't know us we do a podcast on storytelling and i'm the video guy I guess I'm the writing guy, so if uh, oh, if I can plug our podcast at the beginning of
0: your, oh, please podcast. do, please do. <laughs> so one of the staples of uh, one of the staples of the show is shameless self promotion. So yeah, derailed trains of thought available on your podcasting
1: platform of choice, where we talk about storytelling for the creator and the consumer of
0: all types, yeah, all types. Believe me. And then over here on the other side, we have this lovely couple.
3: Joe, that's your turn to speak. <laughs> No,
0: it
4: was your, you, you no. always let the woman go first.
3: Oh, okay, I see. My name is Joy Metter and... Joe Metter. Well, I don't have both names.
4: Yeah. <laughs> or, aka...
3: Kermit the Frog.
4: Wait, so your name
1: is Joy and jo- Joe Medder and your name is Kermit the Frog?
3: Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. what I'm getting out of this <laughs> conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, sounds about right. Listeners, do you understand
0: why they're some of my favorite people now? <laughs> <laughs> You flatter us. <laughs> I, I have to take care of the tourists here on Monster Island. I mean, you, you guys are here because your podcast is sentient and brought you here. Uh, what brings you two here? I mean, I have uh, we go on, oh, way back. Oh, I go way back with all the other. I
4: heard there was free
0: pizza. <laughs> you came to Monster Island for free pizza?
4: Yeah, I do a lot for free pizza. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Future Nate jumping in here using Futurian editing technology because I forgot to mention here that this episode's toku topic is the Great Depression. Now back to the show. Well done, well done. (laughs) Yes, Jimmy, I'm getting to that, all right? I I remember the contractual obligations. We'll get to it. You got to understand, Jimmy writes all of the, he calls it the entertaining info dump. And uh, this week we're talking about King Kong from 1933. The first season of the podcast is going to start with all the King Kong movies. He wants to get all the preliminary information out of the way. You know, some facts about the movie, some quick reminders about the story and all of that. I didn't have time to do it. Jimmy writes all of them. And due to the fine print in the contract, I have to read every single one of these. So let's get to that. And while that plays, through the magic of editing, we will have watched King Kong.
3: Dun, 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 dun.
0: Sounds cool. Kong is a fierce force of nature, a giant gorilla worshipped as a deity by natives of a remote island. However, he exhibits some anthropomorphisms like curiosity, rage, and grief. While he presumably ate the brides offered him by the natives, he is enamored with the blonde-haired Anne Darrow, whom he protects or seeks as his prize throughout the film. The island's deadly dinosaur denizens include a brontosaurus, a stegosaurus, an elasmosaurus, a pteranodon, a two-legged lizard, and a t-rex. They are animalistic and aggressive, attacking Kong and the humans to protect their territory or find food. Carl Denham, a charismatic and daring movie director, leads an expedition to the island in order to film in a never-before-seen exotic location, but when he finds Kong, He seeks to capture the big ape and make a fortune showcasing him. The optimistic and charming out-of-work actress Anne Darrow is found by Denham and hired as the leading lady of his next film. Once abducted by Kong, her only goal is to escape him. Jack Driscoll, the rugged and heroic first mate of the SS Venture, is initially just doing his job, but then spends most of the film trying to rescue Anne, with whom he's fallen in love. The laid-back but world-weary Captain Englehorn commands the SS Venture and serves as Denim's translator on the voyage. The human and monster plots are separate until the protagonists arrive on the island, at which point they are unified. From then on, all the characters' actions revolve around either rescuing Anne from Kong or capturing or killing him. While the dinosaurs pose threats to the characters, Kong is the central problem. The natives built a massive wall to keep Kong and the dinosaurs at bay. The sailors kill a stegosaurus with rifles. A T-Rex and a pteranodon fight Kong to eat Anne, but he slays them. After Kong escapes through the wall's gate, native warriors attack him with spears, but he kills them. The sailors knock out Kong with Denim's gas bombs and transport him to New York. There, Kong breaks free from his chains and rampages through the city. Kong finds Anne in a high-rise apartment and climbs to the top of the Empire State Building. Four military biplanes attack Kong, who destroys one, but he succumbs to the gunfire and falls to the streets below. The script by James Creelman and Ruth Rose from a story by British mystery novelist Edgar Wallace and director Marion C. Cooper is a simple and focused adventure story that moves at a brisk pace with a handful of memorable characters and a secondary romantic subplot. The film features groundbreaking special effects, including stop-motion animation, matte painting, rear projection, and miniatures. Four puppets of Kong were built by Marcel Delgado and animated by special effects legend Willis O'Brien, who recycled dinosaur puppets he created for his cancelled film creation. He and an assistant painstakingly filmed the puppets one frame at a time, spending seven weeks alone on Kong's fight with the T-Rex. His fingerprints can be seen on Kong's undulating fur. A life-size replica of Kong's head and hand were used for several shots. To combine the stop-motion and live-action shots, the filmmakers used the Dunning process and the Williams process, which utilized special lighting, combined two strips of film, and required an optical printer. Thanks to their incredible craftsmanship, the effects have aged well and paved the way for all special effects that followed. King Kong is a fun but often horrific adventure epic with a moderate amount of gravitas and a tragic ending. With its superstitious natives and a mysterious island populated by dinosaurs and a giant ape, this is a fantasy film. The film is revolutionary and unique, tapping into elements of the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale, ancient myths, and pulp fiction. Among its many firsts was the score by composer Max Steiner, who wrote the first feature-length musical score for an American talkie picture that was also thematic and not just background music. The film introduced the world to Kong and changed cinema forever. It became one of the most influential films ever made, inspiring artists, directors, and actors, among others, for generations. It paved the way for Godzilla and the kaiju genre three decades later. Directors Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoedsack set out to make the greatest adventure film ever made with King Kong. It was created to entertain a Depression-era general audience by plucking them out of their miserable lives and taking them on an escapist fantasy adventure. The film was a gigantic success when originally released March 2nd, 1933 in New York City and nationwide April 7th, grossing $1.86 million on a budget of $672,000 at a time when tickets cost 35 to $0.75 each. It was a blockbuster during each of its re-releases in 1938, 1942, 1946, 1952, and 1956, bringing in a total gross of $5.3 million. It is beloved by critics, film historians, and moviegoers alike, and was selected by the American Film Institute as one of the 100 greatest films ever made. After the implementation of the Motion Picture Code, or Hayes Code, some scenes were edited or excised from the film for its re-releases. These included the Brontosaurus mauling a man, Kong undressing Anne, Kong biting and smashing natives and a reporter, and Kong dropping a woman he mistook for Anne from a skyscraper. The uncut version was lost for years until a 16mm print of the original was found in Philadelphia in 1969 and restored in 1970. In 2005, Warner Brothers made further restorations and added a four-minute overture. Multiple forces are at play. Anne is a destitute actress at a women's shelter thanks to the Depression, which is why she accepts Denham's offer to be in his movie. Modernism collides with superstition when the protagonists encounter the Kong-worshipping natives. There's also a culture clash since only Englehorn knows their language, and the natives attempt to trade six of their maidens for Anne, indicating women are seen as property. A bizarre love triangle forms as Kong and Driscoll compete for Anne's affections. Nature clashes with civilization as the sailors battle both dinosaurs and Kong to rescue Anne. This happens again, but in reverse, when Kong is taken to New York and he lashes out at the urban environment. While Cooper insisted there was no subtext to this film, several themes are present and others can be read into it. Denham's ambition leads to the exploitation of the Venture crew, Anne, and Kong, which causes his downfall and the deaths of dozens of people. Love is shown to soften the most hard-nosed of people when Driscoll falls for Anne. Racism is touched upon with the protagonist's attitude toward Chinese cook Charlie and the natives. Hints at slavery may be present in the imagery of Kong and Chains. The film begins with the proverb, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day, it was as one dead. This comes full circle at the end, implying that the mightiest beings can be undone by love. When Denham admonishes over Kong's corpse, it was beauty killed the beast. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. On to our first Toku Talk. All right, I'm glad we got that out of the way. So, here's the most interesting thing about this exercise today. Jimmy, I told you not to let the dog in. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of dogs do you have here on Monster Island? I'm afraid to find out, honestly.
3: Well, he is in character, after all.
0: His collar says Kong.
3: Yes, yes. It's Teddy the Kong. Yeah. Or Kong it's, the Teddy. It's, it's no. a
4: distant relative from the mo- Kong in the movie.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad he's in puppy stage. At least I'm assuming so. <laughs> yeah, it will yeah, be a definitely.
0: little easier to handle. A little easier to handle. But anyway, as I was trying to say, <laughs> okay, the metters are having too much fun petting the dog right now. It's a rag doll in its mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting ahead of everything, Nick. Anyway, what makes this interesting is there are five of us here, and I was the only one before I invited all of you to the screening room and the recording studio who has seen the, this movie, which shocked me. Shocked me more than some with, with some of you, Tim. I am really surprised because you went and studied film at grad school.
1: True. I will only say on my defense, it's hard to catch everything. Although I did remember as we were watching this, I was like, oh, I recognize certain scenes from in the city, like particularly Kong reaching into the room to get Fay Ray. I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that on Muppet Babies. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's the thing. There, this movie is one of the most iconic films made anywhere. I mean, it it is seriously one of the most important movies ever made. It gets referenced everywhere. It has inspired countless people who've worked in the industry and countless authors as well. Uh, I have a book of essays on this film, and one of the introductions, because this book had several introductions, was written by Ray Bradbury. And I know, Nick, you're a big fan of Ray Bradbury. I enjoy Ray Bradbury.
3: Mm -hmm. What you all have to understand is that I've never watched any King Kong movies, ever. This was literally my first one.
4: Yeah, she's pretty new to monster movies in general, actually.
3: So, I mean, for me, it was really cool. I mean, I've seen the, you know, the monster on top of the tall building thing, you know, and various things. But it was the first time I've actually seen Where any of the movies. Where the original
4: came from.
0: Yeah, you had an interesting story. of the You were watching Ralph Breaks the Internet, the, the sequel yes. to Wreck-It Ralph.
3: Yes, and I caught it. And actually, I caught it, and Joe didn't even catch it. I'm like, I haven't even seen the movies, and I caught the fact that they are making a King Kong reference.
0: That's how pervasive this whole thing is. <laughs> you know, it, it, it helps that that scene, you know, the famous scene on top of the building, is on a lot of the posters and everything. Right. But it's, it, like I said, it, you don't get more uh, much more iconic than that. Right. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm pretty sure my other big experience with King Kong before this outside of Mubbit Babies is probably Universal Studios. Uh, one even before I ever went there, I remember seeing the King Kong ride and all the advertisements for it, like the videotapes in the '80s. They often like I, th- I remember Back to the Future. I think they advertised Universal Studios and King Kong was a big feature in that. Oh, the
0: the the Universal Studios King Kong ride. Yeah, I yeah. wish I had gone on on that because that the the Kong in that was animatronic.
1: Yeah, I've been to both parks. When I went to the one in Hollywood. They still do a Hollywood studio tour. Well, they did back in 2005. And it was just the Kong thing was just part of the tour. You like went into one building. He's like, oh, there's King Kong on a building.
0: And he's, you know, his, his head is right there. My personal opinion is that not only the the iconography of this, and there's a lot. This is a movie full of firsts. I was mentioning some of them as we were, as we were watching it. It is such a movie of firsts. I think if you boil it all down, what makes this movie work and what gives it such staying power is I feel like it is just it's pure cinema and it's pure storytelling. And because it is so pure in that, that's why people can latch onto it and they can read a lot of different things into which we'll we'll talk about some of that while we're here. Because who boy, I've read some crazy ideas about this movie. I've also read more about King Kong in the last couple of months than anybody has any right to read. (laughs) (laughs) Old habits die hard. (laughs) So, interestingly, this movie starts with an overture.
3: Yes. A very long overture.
0: I clocked it. It's four minutes. Feels longer than, than it does. Feel longer. <laughs> yeah. It's such a weird concept. Seven years later. <laughs> yeah. It's such a weird thing having a movie with an overture. It, it just, I'm used to when I go to a Philharmonic concert, I'm used to that, but not Musicals in a movie. We have them. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not used to this. this. isn't a musical.
1: Well, and I've seen it for older movies that are super long. Like Ben Hur has an overture, I believe, the, yeah. the 1959 one. Uh, but yeah, that movie's like, three and a half hours long or something. This was
4: it's, not that. Yeah, it, the original Ben-Hur was obscenely long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the thing that makes this even goofier is that it's not original to the film. It was added by uh, by TMC in 2005, and I don't even know why they felt the need to pad it. Maybe it made it work out perfect with all the commercials
4: for two hours. That's probably it.
0: Possibly. <laughs> but then after we get the overture out of the way and we get to the movie proper... And we have the credits and the, the music. I'll talk about the music real quick here. Max Steiner, composer for this. This is one of the first. this was the, one the this was one of the first talkie movies that had a soundtrack made specifically for it. It was not stock music. So that's why if you pay attention to this, you'll notice that and this was a common practice with a lot of older films. It's what's called Mickey Mousing. So as the characters are moving, the music, because you would see this a lot in cartoons, the the music is composed in a way that it fits the action perfectly so for example when the when the native chief is walking toward our heroes the music fits with each one of his steps
2: mm-hmm. it is i mean it's a good choice because the movie's very i mean like, especially the middle is very visual there's like almost no talking yeah so Yeah. Having, having a soundtrack that's particular to it is really an advantage.
1: Well, and at this point, talkies are really actually pretty new. Like the Jazz Singer was like 1929, 1930 somewhere around there. So, yeah, this is this is a really new phenomenon. So, yeah, it makes I makes total sense that this is one of the first that had its own unique soundtrack,
0: which is why it's in, it's impressive just how big and bombastic this soundtrack is. It is it's really intense the entire time.
3: Well, and the incredible thing is, is that I love old movies. That's not the incredible part. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> the actual, I know, right? The incredible part is, like, I actually had to go, like, and look at some of the movies that I really liked because the music was so, I don't want to say similar, but the style was so similar. And, like, I was thinking of a movie that was apparently made in the 1960s, and then you, you like, you think about it, and you're like, wow, this set, the the whole entire music for movies to come. Yeah, movies to come because that sound was still very popular in the 1960s and it's kind of really cool to see how that takes place.
0: Yeah. And then we after we get all of that out of the way. Well, oh, can well,
1: I can I pull out one more film? Uh, go for it. Film nerd thing real quick. Uh so from the opening well, We
0: approve of nerdiness on this
1: podcast. <laughs> no. So one of the first things I noticed from the opening credits was uh, the name David O Selznick who was, in, and I know Zelznik because I read a, had, had a whole film history class about the studio system, and he, he was a huge studio uh, producer in the old Hollywood system where the producers were really kind of in charge of what movies got made and what actors got put on those movies, and Selznick was a huge power player during that period. I mean, his most people consider his uh, biggest project was um, Gone with the Wind. Um, which came after this, and then he was all, he also won an Academy Award for producing Rebecca, an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I forgot this was a a Selznick picture. It brought me back to old film history class. Okay, nerd rant done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> then after the credits are out of the way, we get to the thematic statement of the film: the fake Arab proverb. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, that's not fake I think it's found in the second opinions of the Quran <laughs> the <opinion> uh,
0: section. <laughs> yeah well I'm unfortunately I do not I, I'm I mean, I'm a terrible host I don't have it written down exactly right here but it goes something like and uh, and beast looked upon beauty and stayed his hand and from then on he was as one dead
3: pretty yeah. close yeah
4: yeah and so they're uh, really pushing this theme of like women kill people <laughs> <laughs> That's actually the I had forgotten
0: until I rewatched this recently before tonight, just how often the beauty and the beast parallels get brought up. I knew it It was I knew it was a thing. It was at least mentioned a couple of times. I did not realize it, it seemed like it was just rap. It just came a lot more than I thought it was. And. I did some reading on it, and there was someone who really went to town with that idea that this was Beauty and the Beast and how it really isn't Beauty and the Beast, because the Beast dies at the end, and that's not like the actual fairy tale and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think you're missing the point a little bit there.
4: (laughs) The beauty still tamed the Beast.
0: Yeah. I I think the the idea is that—and you see this— we're we're, I, we're jumping around a little bit, but you see this echo actually a little bit with Jack and Anne as well, where Jack is this gruff sailor and he he makes sexist comments for you know the first thirty minutes of the movie, and then in true thirties fashion, just suddenly looks at Anne and says, "Hey, I think I love you."
3: <laughs> well, I think there's part of the disbelief of time too. Sorry, I'm being all, like, actual, like, science. <laughs>
0: no, it's totally fine. But the whole idea, I think, thematically sp- talk uh, speaking, is that Anne had the same effect on Jack. He, she softened him. And by doing so, you know, he's able to, I guess, self-actualize a little bit more. Now, in Kong's case, it gets him killed. Yeah, I can totally see how, like, women's rights studies
1: Majors would have a heyday with this sort of story. Because, yeah, you started with Jack saying, yeah, women just cause all kinds of problems. But the Islanders are using women to appease Kong in a weird way. So, I mean, the only trouble that the women, like, in the... So, I don't I don't know if the women are actually the peacemakers or, in Kong's case, yeah, the troublemakers, but...
2: So, well... Oh, sorry, no, I, Random thought. You know, so apparently also for, according to... Um, called Carl Dunham, that way to appease your audience to have a woman in the movie, too. Yeah, the the public must have a pretty face. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it it certainly does rotate around this idea of, like, the the single woman tends to cause all kinds of repercussions, good and bad, for all our characters. I mean, and by herself tends to make everything happen just by existing.
3: Well, and the other thing is this. Like, I think even in that time period still it was... Considered unlucky. It was bad, you know, juju for lack of a better word um, to have a woman on board that type of trip.
4: Oh, on, t- on board a ship, yeah.
3: Ship. I said trip, ship, you know. <laughs> Stop making fun of me, husband. That wasn't making fun. That was <laughs> correct. <laughs>
4: That's Jimmy's job. Oh, <laughs> correct. And Jimmy's busy with the dog at the
0: yeah, he, he is unfortunately. So I guess I won't have to deal with his hounding. Pardon the pun. <laughs> At least for a few minutes. And and then the other aspect,
1: I guess you could say, of the strange way women are interesting way women are protected are uh, portrayed exactly. in this movie, the fact that Carl Dunham basically grooms. And to come with them. Like you you had some very interesting
0: reactions to
1: that scene. It
2: was
1: (laughs) creepy. Like this It was so creepy. The the lines you were giving are the same sort of things a a human trafficker would say. (laughs) 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 Yeah, what was
0: it? You actually made that joke when we were watching the movie. It was was was, uh, it's it's
1: just business. I was like, well, so is human trafficking.
3: Yeah, it was definitely kind of creepy because like now if someone said that to you, you'd be like Running away, calling for the police. Type right, thing. He
1: found someone on the streets. He's offering to give her a job, give her new clothes. Um, creeper, stalker alert. <laughs> Call <Right>. the
0: police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I've read. Uh, I actually had a. We'll get into it in the in the Toku in the the Toku topic segment. But I uh, I had a guy at G Fest who had a very interesting idea that pertained to that to that some of the dialogue in that scene, though. So we'll uh, yeah. have something to look forward to, listeners. But, you know, since we're on the subject of uh, of the leading lady, so we have Faye Ray here as
1: Anne Darrow. And I'll be honest, for, for with my King Kong ignorance, I for a long time I wasn't sure if Faye Ray was actually the actress's name or the character's name because you always hear
0: about Faye Ray screaming. And, my gosh, she screams a lot. I, was, I joked when we had that scene, which I almost wondered if it had to at least been a little bit meta because... This interesting thing, several of the characters in this movie were modeled after real people who worked on it. So Carl Denham was modeled after Marion C. Cooper, uh, the director, and then Jack Driscoll was, not, was modeled after Ernest Schozak, the other director, and Ann Darrow was modeled after Ruth Rose, who was a former actress and was one of the screenwriters on this, and she's, she was married to Schotzak. So that's why Anne's an out-of-work actress at the beginning of this movie, because that was paralleling her. So you have that scene where she's working with Denim, and it, you know, it's doing a lot of things. I love the exposition in there. You're getting a lot of character moments in here, building all that. And then he keeps telling her, it's like, oh, you see something horrific. You see something horrific. Cover your, ants and, uh, cover your eyes and scream. Scream for your life, and she does it. And I told everybody, you're going to hear that a lot. <laughs> it was great, great. foreshadowing. This whole movie is full of wonderful foreshadowing. It is, it it is, really is. such a yes. tautly, tightly written script. And I I love looking at this just from a screenplay standpoint. Ray Bradbury actually went so far in that essay. I was telling you about saying that this has the perfect screenplay. Oh, interesting. I can see him saying that. Yeah. and It's just so much foreshadowing. the stuff about... They talk about the gas bombs. And then you have the little monkey on the ship. And then that was when you get the first reference to Beauty and the Beast. And, and all of this stuff. And then it takes good chunk of the movie to pay off, but it pays off.
2: And once 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 you meet Kong, then the movie just is crazy. The movie feisty. goes into but,
0: hyperdrive yeah. once Kong shows up.
2: That was, I guess, what was most surprising for me. I knew there'd be some, you know, some of these action scenes, but like really after Kong shows up, it's like one action scene after another, which I don't expect from a 1930s movie.
0: It becomes a series of
4: set pieces after that.
2: And and they, they you know, it's it's almost frantic in a way that I always established with more... More modern movies,
4: yeah. I definitely felt like Michael Bay jumped in there, (laughs) except everything wasn't blowing up, explosions. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did all of you seriously not know there were dinosaurs in this movie? Because there was once the Stegosaurus came in, there was this very surprised reaction.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea there was dinosaurs. I just knew there was a giant gorilla that's in. He ends up at the Empire State Building. That was my previous knowledge of the movie. I
1: I knew I had heard somewhere along the line that dinosaurs were involved. Maybe when I was hearing Scuttlebutt about the Peter Jackson uh, movie, but I I have to say I did think the that yeah that whole chase sequence on Skull Island I actually found probably the best part of the movie, which is interesting considering the Empire State Building stuff is the most famous. But I thought
0: yeah, Jimmy, yeah, it, he's fact checking us. the 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 island's never called Skull Island. Oh, okay. And Where this... does that come from? It's what fans call it, and it was called that in the novelization of this film that came out a few months beforehand. It's just the island
4: with the skull on it.
0: It's it's Skull Mountain Island or whatever, because the, they say the, the, the mountain looks like a skull. Uh, yeah,
1: Skull Island is a lot catchier. It it certainly is. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that, that whole sequence with the dinosaurs and stuff, and, and I'm not really a huge kaiju person myself. Um, I've admitted this before, but yeah, the just the number of special effects that they were throwing at us, the interesting scenarios, it was the whole section was mesmerizing.
2: But like, when I first see Kong, like, oh no, it's gonna be like all these bad stop action things you see in like mystery science theater. Yeah. But like, after about just a little bit more, like, this is really engrossing, like, it really f- sells itself absurdly well.
4: Yeah, after growing up on mystery science theater and seeing all the terrible versions of stop action. I didn't think you could do it well. This movie does do it well. That's I was
3: like prepared to like have a something to doodle on because I thought I was going to get bored. Because <laughs> I like sci-fi, but I'm not usually into this this specific type of sci-fi. But I actually found it like truly fascinating, and I too was astounded at the graphics because I mean it felt real. I mean, okay, yeah, 1930s real, but it felt real.
0: This was a big budget a-grade hollywood picture in its day and yeah. i again i said that this was a movie of first the special effects in this a huge chunk of them those techniques were invented for this movie it inspired every special effects <laughs> artist that came after it there would be no ilm without this movie there would pretty much be nothing. Uh, the kaiju genre wouldn't exist. A.G. Uh, Tsuburaya, who did the special effects for most of Toho's science fiction and fantasy films back in the fifties and sixties, he was inspired by this movie. He saw this movie, and that's what made him want to become a special effects artist.
1: Now, you you may cover this in your info dump section, but I know there had been some like horror movies done before this, and probably some monsters, you know, like Nosferatu and other. Things like that had the, there... the
0: universal horror cycle was going on at this time. Okay, yeah. so that was going on at this time.
1: So, had there ever been like this is a giant monster movie essentially? Well, kaiju obviously, but ha- so there really hadn't been any other like giant. Mo- there'd been monster movies, but not giant ones.
0: The closest that I can think of offhand to this was the 1925 Lost World, which I have not seen yet. I know all all the kaiju fans are yelling at me through the microphone right now, probably. But I haven't seen that yet. And Willis O'Brien did work on that, and he did stop-motion dinosaurs on it. And then he was working on another project called Creation that was similar in a lot of ways. Actually, very similar to this movie in a lot of ways. It would have involved an expedition to a mysterious island that's populated by dinosaurs, and then they have to get off the island, and there's dinosaurs chasing after them and killing them and all of that.
1: And and is that based off the Conan Doyle book, novel? The Lost World, I mean. Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, but the creation ended up going way over budget. It wasn't getting made, and then Marion C. Cooper shut it down. And he didn't like the story or anything, but he was so impressed with the special effects that he he told uh, Obi was what everybody called him, "I'm working on a movie about a bi- about a giant gorilla. I think you can make this happen for me." So it's all connected. <laughs> But since we're on the subject of the special effects, one of the things I pointed out in this was that wall. One of the one of the main uh, yeah. p- uh, sets in this movie with the natives that was a seventy five foot practical effect.
2: I really enjoyed the
0: practical effects of these old movies. They're, yeah,
2: they're, you don't see them much anymore. No,
0: you don't. But here's something interesting that I discovered about that wall. And this is actually this is a well documented fact. Uh, I'll ask Tim this because I think you might be the one who's most likely to have seen this. Have you ever seen The Most Dangerous Game? I don't think so. I'm surprised. I haven't seen it either yet. But <laughs> a lot of the the jungle sets in this movie were recycled from The from Most Dangerous Game. Ernest Schozak directed that movie. And that's actually, it, it, that one uh, was a trendsetter as well because that one was about a big game hunter who hunts people.
2: I've read the story, not seen the yeah. movie.
0: Yeah. So the jungle sets came from that. But not only did the you know the, the jungle sets come from that, but the wall actually came from a Cecil B. DeMille movie. Okay, King of Kings. They repurposed it. It was they used materials from it to build the uh, to build the wall, that was originally used for the the Roman council house. I think it was what it, from what I read it was what it was called. And in that movie, that was where they had the 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 curtain being torn in two when Jesus dies. Uh, Okay. And for this, they replaced the curtain with the doors and the bolts for where Anne and the sacrifices are supposed to be taken.
1: Wow, they they really did a great job of redressing it because it didn't really strike me
0: as Roman in in any way.
3: Yeah, at all.
0: Although, don't they, they make a comment about that? No, they said it was Egyptian. Egyptian. Excuse me.
2: Did they say Egyptian? I heard like some, they thought some ancient race. Well, at some point, they, when they get closer and look at it, they said it looks Egyptian. Uh, yeah, okay. Just like the statues on the other islands. That's okay.
1: Egyptians make all cool ancient
4: stuff. Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay. Ancient yes. Egypt. <laughs> 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 they traveled seven seas <laughs> making cool
4: things. <laughs>
2: okay, oh. I think that, ga- I mean, every time I looked at that gate, all I could think of was, welcome to Jurassic Park. Yes. Just like that. <laughs> I mean, I, again, references that con. You know, iconic reference. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the inspiration of that. Oh design of that door. Yes. Dude, yes. Why not? Giant monsters. I mean
0: it, it, you could even make the argument that this was in some ways kind of the very prototypical Jurassic Park, you know, the island with all the dinosaurs mm-hmm. and the the humans are trapped on the island, they're trying to get away and the dinosaurs are Rural hunting them down. And, yeah. In yeah.
4: and one rich idiot trying to make money off of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> true that's
4: true all right so we're on the subject of the special
0: effects i've got a few of my own but what was your favorite special effects moment in this and we'll see if there's some overlap
1: the first one i, I remember well I don't, maybe not the first wow one but one that sticks in my mind was the tree sequence just because i thought that was just such a clever i mean there was a lot of mixing of special effects in terms of like you know, on one side of the screen, there's the stop motion, and then here's the live action humans. You know, they blended those things together several times. But but the tree sequence, you actually have Kong moving the tree that these people are on, and it looks you could you totally buy it. And I don't know, that was just when I saw that, I was like, this is wild looking. How how like that tree that the tree by itself it must be huge because there's a bunch of guys on it, and they they didn't look at least to me, they didn't look like the guys were fake. You know, there's certain sequences where the people are, you know, flailing and you know, that's you know, that a, a puppet or a sock, sock thing or a, you know, stop motion. But that, the stuff, the people in the tree did not, at least not to me.
2: I don't know. I don't know which are my favorite, but I think the first one I was really like, wow, was the, the T-Rex fight. Yes. Just, just because <laughs> it's, it's brutal. Like it's like, oh, and yeah, it keeps
0: yeah. going on. And I was not expecting that. And it was like, it was a cool fight. Yes, Jimmy, there's some disagreement over whether or not it was a T-Rex or an Allosaurus. I get it. And in the script, it's just called the meat eater.
1: Whatever. <laughs> details, details, Jimmy. Oh, you're going to get sassy with me, huh? I've got, a, I've got my own podcast. We'll we'll stick them on you later.
0: Trust me, Jimmy, He, he means it.
3: <laughs> the thing that shocked me is like, I'm thinking, okay, there's this giant head. I'm watching this monster, you know, try and tear off, like basically break the doll of this mon- other monster in a girl's mind. And she doesn't pass out. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's this giant head, like the size of a car, and you're not going to pass out? Like, I would totally pass out at that point. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I would
0: argue that that scene with the T-Rex is really the first kaiju fight. You know, I'm the, I'm the kaiju fan in the room. And that, for me, is the first... Th- this movie is the prototypical kaiju movie. Some argue it isn't a kaiju movie. We can have that fight in the comments if you want. But this is, for me, is if it's not the first kaiju fight, it's the forerunner to it, most yeah. certainly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And as I mentioned uh, when we were watching it, that took seven weeks to animate. Seven weeks just on that sequence. And you can see the craftsmanship and the dedication oh, yeah. that Willis O'Brien and his assistant had in putting that together. You can also, what I love, is you can see Willis O'Brien's background as a boxer in <laughs> <laughs> yep. the choreography yeah. of that fight. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. Do you have any favorite moments, Joe? I think my favorite moment, the one that surprised me, is like the the realism that came from the imperfection of the finger puppet. So when he was actually moving the puppet his fingers would bump the edges of it. And because there was fur on the puppet, it like showed like the fur in the wind when it's moving, when he's fighting off mm-hmm. all it's, these monsters to save the girl that he's falling for.
0: Yeah. It's, it's technically an imperfection in the special effects because those are, those are Willis O'Brien's fingerprints that you're seeing, but no one really pays attention to that. I never even really noticed it until I watched a documentary that said, Oh yeah, those are Willis O'Brien's fingerprints because I was just so engrossed in the movie, and uh, I, I came across a, a quotation from the, the late Roger Ebert who made a comment about how stuff like stop motion looks fake but feels real, whereas CGI, at least in his opinion at the time, CGI looks real but feels fake.
3: I would probably agree with that statement. Yeah.
0: It's because... With the with this stop motion puppet, it was because it was only that they built two of them. One was eighteen inches tall. Kong was actually only eighteen inches tall. And then another one was wow. twenty four inches. That's that was it. And you believe whenever that thing is on screen, you believe everything. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He is Kong is such a well realized character, and he's a special effect. This is the first time we have a character who is just a special effect. So it's the first Jar Jar. <laughs> oh. I think you ticked off Jimmy, Nick. You brought up Jar Jar. Uh, yes.
3: <laughs> See, I'm one of those weird people. I don't mind Jar Jar. I know, like, I know I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail. I from don't. That. I
4: don't mind him either. <laughs> now you're all taking him off. <laughs> well, Jimmy, I do agree that Jar Jar is the Antichrist of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> he agrees. <laughs> oh dear.
1: Well, question for you, Nate. Um, just based on your own research. Do you think was the special effects uh, filmed in chronological order? Cause it seemed to me like, like Nick said, one of the very first shots was maybe not the the best introduction for Kong, but the special effects seemed to just keep getting more and more impressive as the movie went. Is there, is that just a
0: theory or I'm not 100% sure. I did read a rather involved essay that went through the, the entire process of making the movie, and I don't remember the exact order that the special effects were filmed. I know, if I remember correctly, and Jimmy will probably remind me of this later, if I got it wrong, I do think the first scene they filmed for the movie overall was actually on the island, but I don't remember what it was with the special effects. So I'm assuming you're talking about the the scene when Kong first appears?
1: Yeah, because... The first time you see his face, it, it's a little uh, stop motion. He almost looks like uh, mm.
2: just something a little off about the first. It's
1: it's, yeah. a,
4: it's a little cheesy, and then it, then it comes in as the movie goes on. Right, the stop motion gets much better.
1: And I don't know if it's because you're getting more used to it, or yeah, it's just improved.
3: Are you talking about the close up or the well the
1: first? Well, the first close up with Kong for sure. But then even after that, I remember thinking that the chase scene with the brontosaurus look more lifelike than the scene with the stegosaurus at the, ver- the like the very first dinosaur they saw yeah i so that's that's like some of the the brontosaurus moving maybe it's the textures or maybe it was a this dist- more of a distant shot i don't know or or maybe it's just the fact of you were watching it longer and you're the more you you get invested into the world the more you stop seeing the stop motion and s- start seeing holy cow these are big dinosaurs
4: yeah, there was a point where I even forgot it was stop motion. It was getting that good.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, for me, I felt like the, the, distance, the distance shot was really, really cool. Like, I was like, oh, wow, it doesn't look stop motion. Um, when you got closer on his face, then I was like, okay, yeah, you can kind of see it more now. But still, it was so extraordinarily well done that, like, after I got over my initial, okay, it is what it is. I I was totally involved in the story.
0: One of the... And this... I'm actually surprised no one brought this one up. It's not the most spectacular scene in the movie in terms of what's actually happening on screen. But from a technical standpoint, it's insane. And that is Kong's cave. And... That that looks like a beautiful matte painting. Oh, it wasn't just a matte painting, Tim. That scene had four special effects techniques being used in just that scene. We had a matte painting. We had the stop-motion animation. We had, I'm trying to remember, I was trying to figure out earlier, but the, 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 are overlaying shots in super, super in Yeah. Yeah. They had super imposition in, in their. Back projection. And back projection. So you had all of that in that one shot. It looked good.
3: It was incredibly <laughs> beautiful. I was like, I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> minus, I mean, minus the dinosaurs, right? My, yeah. Minus the dinosaurs and all of that fun stuff.
4: Actually, she's adventurous enough. She might try it with the dinosaur. <laughs>
3: I probably would. <laughs> as long fate. as, <laughs>
0: as long as you have the giant gorilla to keep you safe, right?
3: Exactly.
0: So funny thing, and you, you you blink, you miss it, and I missed it many times when I watched this movie. Until again, someone pointed this out in a documentary. But right when the 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 lizard that is not a snake, <laughs> though it behaves like a snake, shows up to try to get Anne, and then fights Kong. If you look very carefully. Kong is actually bending over and picking up a flower because he's going to get the, it's a joke that Willis O'Brien put in there because he's supposed to be getting it for Anne, <laughs> but then gets interrupted by the lizard.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna ask a question here that I thought during the movie. So if Kong is so infatuated with Anne, what did he do with the other girls that were given to Kong?
0: There was an entire essay that tried to figure that out in that book I have. Which, by the way, all of the things that I used for research in this episode will be included in the show notes in case you want further reading.
3: I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, what does he do with them? Like, they're, I mean, they never really explain that. Like, he doesn't
1: really seem that interested in eating them. At least not Anne, unless, I don't know, she was just something new that he hadn't seen before. Well, which he they... Had blonde hair, huh? Yeah, oh,
0: yeah. They, they make a remark about that, you know, because Carl Denham makes her, uh, comments like, oh, blondes are scarce around here. Yeah. So he's used to the to the dark hair, dark skin girl showing up, and now suddenly there's this blonde white woman, so even the natives are like, oh, he's going to love this. It's different.
3: But can he see color? I know. I'm you might all be all
0: getting that. deeper than this movie
1: <laughs> needs to. <Yeah. laughs> and to be fair, the, the natives never reference sacrifice as a sacrifice it's they call them the brides the bride the bride, of, bride. so I, I don't know maybe uh, they live a long life maybe maybe they get just hugged to death that's actually what i was thinking maybe like, they only get eaten
2: after seven days after, after the honeymoon period basically yeah
0: my the the prevailing theory that I have heard the one that makes the most sense to me at least in the readings is that Kong most likely ate the other ones, but because Anne is so different, he's curious and a bit enamored with her. But there's a lot of essays that are trying to analyze exactly what Kong's motivations in this are. And oh my gosh, I read so many ridiculous things that related to that, which you know we'll talk about I'll talk a little bit about later, but. So I would be of the opinion that because she is so different, he's taken with her. And it fits in, and this is the thing, I read a, I read a lot of essays that were trying to analyze Skull Island and Kong and all of these things from, and the natives from a scientific standpoint, with, you know anthropo- using anthropology and ecology and all that, and they were pretty much coming out saying none of this makes any sense. And I think that's because you're missing the point. This is not realistic, it's mythic. That's what this is. This is a modern Myth. It is not necessarily meant to make realistic scientific sense. Why would there be an island populated by dinosaurs with a giant gorilla on it? Why would the natives even stay?
3: Well, my question was, how does anything behind that wall survive? Because every five seconds, there's a something bigger, badder. Yeah. I mean, with There's
0: all... always a bigger fish.
3: Exactly. <laughs> well, true. <laughs>
0: Jimmy is not happy with these Phantom Menace references. <laughs> eh, yeah, tough. I think you're officially on his hit list. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'll be happy to debate the Star Wars prequels with him anytime. Well, you, you keep in mind, Jimmy is a survivor and a veteran of the infamous war in space, though he still won't tell me how he did it. My current theory is that it was through the power of retcon. Uh, powerful. Quite, indeed. quite
4: powerful, I see yours retcon is as big as mine.
3: (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. (laughs) And folks, this and folks, this is what I love with.
0: (laughs) No joke. For the rest of this episode, we'll be able to top that.
4: (laughs) Challenge accepted.
0: (laughs) And then finally, to kind of to backtrack a little bit to the special effects. My other in this one, because of the sheer iconicness of it. That's probably not a word, but I don't care. Climbing the Empire State Building and the the fight, if you want to call that, with the biplanes. It doesn't get more memorable than that.
3: Okay, it, I didn't get to put my two cents in yet, though. The train, go for it. The train. Like oh, the, the train. train! Okay, I know we talked about a little bit about that, but the thing that I found so amazing is that it looked like a real train. It looked, I mean, it looked like he was actually destroying it. And that's pretty impressive because the special effects in there were like very realistic. I mean, I, granted, I'm not looking to like tear it apart, but I just thought it was very well done.
1: That was a cool sequence for a sequence that was apparently just filler. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, because uh, according to one of the documentaries on the, the Blu-ray, that was not in the script. It was dreamed up by Marion C. Cooper Because if they hadn't if they hadn't put it in there, then the movie would have been thirteen reels, and he's everyone was superstitious. They're like, he said, "No movie of mine is going to have thirteen reels." So he put it in there to get a fourteenth reel. But then, funny thing is, ironically, through the editing process, it got cut down to eleven anyway.
1: The thing I I like about well, the interesting thing about the Empire State Building sequence was, in some ways, once we got to that, it's like, okay, I know exactly what's going to happen from here because. Yeah, that scene is so iconic. Everyone talks about it. You know, I knew what to expect, even though I'd never seen the movie. But what I liked is, yeah, that moment of pathos with Kong right before he was dying. And it may have been a little drawn out, but a lot
0: of that, like... Yeah, Kong dies like he's in a Shakespearean play.
1: Yeah. But a lot, a lot of... He, it brought out a lot of nice emotion with him, like, what's going on? And I just
2: wanted to take care of my girl. and Him just touching and like, oh, what? It, this is blood. What is What is this? I mean... Again, just simple motions, but it adds a lot to that scene.
0: It's not just, oh, planes. Yeah, the I actually read that there were points where Willis O'Brien and Marion C. Cooper disagreed actually very stridently about the characterization of Kong. Marion C. Cooper wanted him to be more ferocious and monstrous, whereas O'Brien wanted to put in moments like that to create pathos. And there were points where they got into such arguments about it that O'Brien would just walk off set. He always came back, but he would walk off set because they were that upset. They disagreed that much.
2: It's interesting. I wonder if that creates some of this uh, ambiguity people have about Kong. It's like, you can't figure out what he's thinking. Maybe because the directors couldn't agree directors? No.
0: Yes. The director and, and the special effects the guy. Couldn't, couldn't quite decide which way we're going to play it. You know, Savage,
2: Pathos... So get a mix of, you know, beast and something more.
3: Well, and I mean, when they, okay, everyone knew the flash is coming. He's going to freak out. But the thing that I found really interesting was he was like, you guys need to stop because he thinks you're attacking her. He was fine until he felt she was in danger. And that was like a really key turning point of, oh, okay. He's not this vicious animal that everyone seems to feel or think.
4: He's not just the vicious animal. That yeah, because yeah. he
1: he he definitely was uh, kind of vicious against that T Rex. <laughs> yeah. well, well, he
3: did eat a lot of people. <laughs> I, no, I his. I think he bit yeah. them.
4: He did not eat them. He bit them. Yeah, he bit them. Didn't like the taste and threw them on the ground. <laughs> he, he did
0: sample a lot of people essentially.
3: Let's
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, see, and that's the thing that for me, and th- part of this comes from some uh, from some of the reading and the research that I've done. But I even I notice this as I'm watching the movie. There is a a very distinctly masculine energy that comes from Kong in that that ferociousness, in that protectiveness that he has with Anne. She's terrified the entire time, and understandably so, but I don't think Kong intends any harm to her the entire time. He's fighting all these dinosaurs in large part because he's trying to keep her safe. Now, he's very possessive, obviously,
4: but she is his prize, and he will keep her safe. I also find that very ironic because up until the moment that Anne meets Kong, she has zero stranger danger.
0: <laughs> True. And then what, 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 it becomes almost this kind of weird love triangle, if you want to look at it this way. Once Kong shows up, so we have Anne, we have Jack, and then we have Kong. And both Kong and Jack are trying to protect her. It's just that Kong's protecting her from all the dinosaurs and Jack is trying to save her from Kong. Yeah. And who does uh, Kong take Anne from when uh, at the,
1: in the city, like Jack's right there with her. Yep. And aren't they in a bedroom? It's an apartment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right after he finds the wrong woman and then drops her to her death. Yeah, what a jerk. Jerk move, Kong. <laughs> that scene is horrific. I, when, if you stop and think about it, that is that is a terrifying thought.
3: Well, that's when I'm really, really glad it's black and white and not made in today's standards.
0: <laughs> Funny thing, and this was, this was brought up in Jimmy's entertaining info dump. That scene, along with all the other really violent scenes, except for the dinosaurs, weirdly enough, if I remember correctly, ended up getting censored in later re-releases of this movie because of the Hays code. Oh. oh. And those scenes were lost for decades until 1969 and someone found a print that was uncut and then it was fully restored.
1: Wow. Okay, you know, that crossed my mind because I was thinking about what I was trying to put my myself in the perspective of someone seeing this like at the time when it was released and just it would, I imagine it being very overwhelming because yeah. Like what? O- what other movie was like this out there? There's certainly not many that were that violent. Yeah, that many people dying and, and kind of. I mean, you didn't see a
4: lot of blood, but all the implications be pretty gruesome. Yeah, there's a, there's some people got their face stepped on, literally.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, the dinosaurs are slaughtering people mm-hmm. left and right too. Although I will I will give those sailors credit; they scored the first kill. Uh, they true. took that Stegosaurus out, and that Stegosaurus is gigantic. And I, they were mean. <laughs> I mean, they shot at the thing a couple of times, and then they walk over, and it's like, oh, it's still alive. And then they shoot it in the head, and it's just, dang. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that makes us feel
1: a little bit more comfortable with all the carnage later on. I don't know. That may be a more modern perspective. But some sometimes you get that, like, oh, they, they killed them. Well, they're for a the
0: game now. I don't know. I only have a handful of nitpicky dislikes on this movie because it's 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 just that great. One of them is, since we're talking about people getting killed, what was that dude thinking when he decided to climb the tree to get away from a brontosaurus? I will never understand that. Now, I think that gets referenced in Jurassic Park later, but it wasn't scary at that point. But I'm like, dude, your solution to the problem is to get eye level with it?
1: If, if it was a better hiding place, it would have
4: made more sense. But yeah. Yeah, let's take the one log that's eye-level and has zero cover.
3: <laughs> when there's a whole bunch of brush everywhere else around
0: you. And then another, uh, since I'm on the subject of my nitpicks, the other one, when they try to address this in here, but the when they're trying to figure, well, what do we do? And he's at the top of the Empire State Building. Oh, I got an idea. How about airplanes? We'll shoot him. And I'm thinking... How do you know you won't hit Anne? Two. How do you know she won't fall down with the monkey? They're they're really really good shots. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope so. This you know, was for stormtroopers. Man. Yes. Now they did try to address it by saying, well, we'll do it when he puts Anne down. I'll uh, give him credit did for they that.
3: Know that he was going to put her down.
0: Sorry. So many holes in this uh, in this uh, in this plan. But again, like I said. It's not meant to be realistic. It's mythic. The, you know, this airplane scene actually gets foreshadowed with the pterodactyl, you know, the flying opponents, except in this case Kong is realizing that these things can bite him from a hundred feet away.
3: <laughs> which Joe called even before knowing that was gonna happen, which was pretty amazing. It, it was great. The pterodactyl thing. Yeah, the yeah. pterodactyl yeah, thing. Yeah, that like, was wonderful. I
4: I was just riffing the movie like I normally do when I watch a movie for the first time. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm right on schedule to be taken by a pterodactyl. And literally 30 seconds later, the she did. was It wasn't it. even 30 seconds.
0: I thought what you were doing is you either knew what was coming or you saw the pterodactyl in the background. If you pay close attention, you'll see it flapping in the background because it's supposed to be, I guess, circling the mountain. I seriously thought you saw it in the background. No, there
4: was definitely a pattern of dinosaurs attacking her and Kong <laughs> defending her at that point. And I'm like, well... They're in the air. The next one's going to be a pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> well, but speaking of riffing, uh, we've already talked about some of the jokes, but there
0: are some things in here. Actually, I thought the the humor in this is actually there's a lot of good wit in this movie. I had forgotten about that actually, and uh, so I was enjoying that. But I did have a, a handful of things written down that I thought were kind of funny. I, I love one of the first lines because it's one of we hear we st- were introduced before we even see any of the main characters, and was talking about denim, and then we get a very quick again, such a tightly written script. Uh, we get a clear impression of the kind of man Carl Denham is because someone says he goes up to a lion and tells him to look pleasant
1: <laughs> or the, uh, the he got mad at the at a cameraman for uh, running away from a charging rhino. Yeah <laughs> he said I was right there with the rifle. <laughs> he, he was uh, he was a very interesting character. wouldn't you say Nick? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed him very much. He was
0: He might be my favorite character in this because spoiler warning audience. Tim will be coming back, actually, in our next film discussion episode. I will. Did, did my did I not get my return tickets from Monster Island? I better check mine. Sorry, Tim. Uh, we only had enough for one of us. What? Yeah, I had to go. I, I have a family, so oh, okay. sorry. You, you get an extended visit. Don't worry. Don't worry. Jimmy is a, is a great pilot with a wonderful ship. You'll love it. He'll take you home to Indiana. It'll be okay. Okay. I, I, I don't have to bunk with him, do I? No, we've got some rooms. Don't worry. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll set you up in the in the Monsterland Resort. You'll be okay.
4: If you say so. All expenses paid. Six <laughs> days, seven nights in Monster Island Resort. <laughs> Book your trip now. <laughs> anyway, Carl Denham,
0: I already feel like is a fairly complicated, complex character because the you know he's the showman, and you like him because he's he does ooze charm. But he also is the kind, and he's very adventurous, he's very brave, but he's also the kind of guy who seems to be willing to do whatever is necessary, even if the morality and perhaps even the legality of it might be a little deba- debatable. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was
1: like, I found this map to a unknown island. What what am I going to do? I'm going to take a camera crew. <laughs> uh, there may be natives. Like, yeah, we're going to go shoot these, these ho- possibly hostile natives and... <laughs> Just stick our camera out there. Uh,
4: it seems very unscrupulous. Uh, well, to be fair, before that, there was the kidnapping slash hiring of Anne. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, true. But,
1: <laughs> this but is, we're, I'm still saying my point is like the whole basis of this entire trip is essentially a filmmaking documentary enterprise, which I guess nowadays you if you would have the sort of character, it'd be like the stoopy journalist that pokes her nose into wherever.
0: I always feel like that whenever I'm watching a movie that is about making movies, that it's like one level of inception <laughs> because so, because I'm, I'm just picturing the real film crew hanging around while the fake film crew filming, the fake film crew. So you've got Cooper and Schoatzak giving direction to Robert Armstrong, who's Carl Denham while he's giving uh, giving direction to and it's <laughs> like, like I said, it's inception there. Question. Do you think Dunham would have actually tried to
4: use
1: Anne as bait for Kong? Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. He more or less said he, I mean, he
1: more or less said he was going to. He was, hint, he was hinting that way. I, I wonder if the rest of the, his people would have
4: let him, though.
0: They may have, That may have been the, I the think, straw. that. Uh,
4: obviously, Jack would have. Yeah, I was going to
0: yeah. say Jack would have something to say, but he kind of already had something to say that he's like, no, he can't. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Well, but I no. think they were all be like, um, no, because I'd rather not be eaten myself. You didn't lose
0: 12 crew members. Yeah. Although I swear it had to be more than that. But the reason I bring that up, Tim, is because Denim comes back in the sequel, Son of Kong, and the Robert Armstrong actually said he preferred that one to the original because the, he got to do more with the character. Okay. So you have something to, to look forward to. Interesting.
1: I, I mean, he was a very interesting character, if kind of stupid. <laughs> Yes, let's bring Kong to to uh, downtown New York City. I can't imagine what could go wrong. We we just had him like slaughter a whole bunch of people. I'm sure
0: our chains will be good enough for this guy. But civilization
2: <laughs> will tame him.
0: <laughs> That's a huge theme in the movie. Actually, yeah. is the you know nature uh, and civilization versus civilization. You know, we past
2: the wall, everything's just brutal and yeah, you know kill things. And then bookends My. are like you know more civilized in theory.
1: Yeah, I mean, modern uh, technology supposedly subdued Kong, so of course that means they could...
2: You can always trust technology.
1: But it's a weird aspect to, like, announce, yes, this guy was was wild and free and we enslaved him. Aren't we awesome? <laughs> Progress. 1930s were a different you're, time. <laughs> you're
0: jumping ahead of me on this, because I have some discussion questions along those lines. But no, actually, funny thing. Cooper recruited Fay Ray into this movie by telling her that she was going to ha- be working alongside the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood.
3: Oh. And
0: she thought he was talking about Clark Gable. Uh, Ooh,
3: <laughs> nice. <laughs> Ouch.
0: So Yeah, that's a denim sort of. That is a denim kind of method, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> another Another thing I thought was really funny is after our very melodramatic 1930s confession of love, and uh, so Jack and Anne are just are just smooching like there's no tomorrow. And then Captain Englehorn says, you know, are you on deck? And then Jack pauses just long enough to say yes. And then goes right back. <laughs> the thing about it is, and I, I mentioned this at the beginning, for me, this movie is pure cinema. It is pure storytelling. And because it is pure storytelling in that it's just people just w- having a great idea and telling a great story, and just it's just about the story. They're not trying to inject other things into it. And I think by doing that, it allows people to bring their own ideas to the story and there's plug those in. Yeah, there's yeah. such uh, there's such great room for interpretation in this, which I think is part of the staying power of this film. The problem is that leads to some really crazy ideas about this movie, a lot of which I came across in my reading. And some of it is, you hinted at it before, Tim, is the kind of, some of the datedness of this movie. There are a lot of people who, in interpreting this movie, really genuinely believe, to put it bluntly, Kong's motivation is sexual in nature. One essay, actually, no, not just one, several essays I came across even tried to argue that this movie is a rape fantasy.
1: Uh, This doesn't surprise me. I mean, like, scholars can make sex out of anything.
4: I hope that came out right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe better to say they read sex into anything. That's that's a better way to put it. Yes, thank you.
3: Okay, so for me, I'm like, really? It's a movie about a monster. I think that as a society, we seem to like to make everything about sex, but it doesn't mean that everything's about sex.
2: (laughs) I think the more natural reading, just more of a curiosity, uh, it's mine, and you know, almost like I mean, the way he treats, and sometimes almost like a like a kid with a doll,
4: yeah. And that's yeah. a very different ver, a different type of affection. You can't have my doll. You can't have my my possession. My blankie. My blankie.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is, is that there are there are scenes in the movie that could potentially lend itself to that. All the Beauty and the Beast talk probably is part of it, and obviously Kong is enamored with. You know, the beautiful young woman who, by the way, Faye Ray is not blonde. She wore a wig. Interesting.
1: No, I, I couldn't tell.
0: Yeah, I, I'm astonished at how well. This. She's actually dark-haired. and They made her wear a wig so it would contrast with Kong. But the you have the very infamous scene, and I can't begin to tell you how many essays I read that latched onto this scene and just went nuts with it. And this was another one of the, of the scenes that was cut because of the, it was censored because of the Hays Code, when he's plucking at her dress. They're reading sexual connotations into that, because you have the big masculine figure picking at the clothes undressing of a woman. Her, yeah undressing her. And I will admit there is concept art that was done by Willis O'Brien where the undressing actually went further. Anne was actually topless after, he, after Kong was messing with her. So it's a bit more of a, of a even pulpier. Then you know, because there's a lot of pulp fiction influence in this. How much does it talk about what Kong's motivation? How much does that talk about the filmmakers uh, desire to have an audience? Because Marion C. Cooper rejected a lot of this a uh, lot of the stuff that was getting read into this. Willis O'Brien actually did uh, had a much more innocent view of that sequence. He thought of it as being more like someone plucking petals <laughs> off of oh, a yeah. flower. Yeah. and that Willis so and, uh, and Marion C. Cooper just thought it was comical. I think in their minds, it was just Kong is curious, and he doesn't and know exactly most, yeah, what Anne is, and he's just, what is this? And he's just picking at
2: it. I think if you don't already have a pr- particular point of view, that's the, one of the more natural readings. If you know anything just about kids or anyone who just gets enamored with something who, you know, Kong is not fully intelligent in, like, a human way.
4: Yeah, I was going to say anyone who's owned animals knows that, they get interested in something. They may not know exactly what it is, but it can hold their attention for a long time. And that's what more... And tearing they, it apart something they do. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what I, I saw the Brides of Kong being as toys that he gets to break apart. Distractions, yeah.
3: Well, and then that leads again into his intelligence level. Like, how intelligent is he? Um, I know we talked a little bit about the difference in, you know, that part. But, I mean, a lot of that is his intelligence. I really felt like he wasn't quite sure what it was. Like, oh, what is this thing?
2: With the whole Beauty and the Beast thing, it's almost like, you know, in the original fairy tales, the beauty makes the beast more human. And I think you could still play that level, that Kong becomes a little less animalistic because of... Yeah. um, And Darrow. And I think that's, as far as that metaphor... Needs to be taken in the in the case of this movie.
0: I can tell you, and maybe these essays are influenced more by the by the remakes that came oh, okay. after this. I can tell you that uh, the 1976 remake, which actually I think was I saw before I saw this, it annoyed me that I couldn't find this for the longest time. I was mildly obsessed actually with finding this. But you're talking to a guy who grew up without cable, so it's not like I had TMC and I could just wait for King Kong 1933 to come on. I ended up seeing the 76 remake first, and it felt, there's a similar scene in that version, and it feels creepier and more sexualized than it does in this, and I didn't like it, Back then because I thought this makes absolutely no sense. But I mean it just goes
1: to show the difference in time period. I mean, that's post-sexual revolution and where we had a lot of different misguided thoughts about sex and people would start taking Freud way more seriously than they should have.
0: Well, and then the the two thousand you haven't seen the the only one here who's seen the two thousand five version, the Peter Jackson it's, version, is I Nick. See it, yeah. And they skirt it in that one by mm-hmm. making it more of a friendship. Oh, okay. I thought maybe yeah, the, because Anne, one of the the big, I, I'm going to save it for when I get to that episode. But one of the big differences is that Anne is terrified of Kong at first in the Peter Jackson version, but then develops a bond with him and they feel like friends. Yeah. At the end of it, so they get around it by doing that, and I think that was a wise move to make. When you said they skirted it, I thought you meant they
1: gave her a skirt instead of a dress. Ha 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 ha. You're welcome. Jimmy approves of the ponds. Well, thank you. Can I get a rim shot? Thank you. I'll be here all night. Well, actually, no, I won't because, well, maybe I will because
0: I forgot I'm staying here on Monster (laughs) Island. Anyway. Details. One more discussion question that I want to throw at you. And again, in our discussion, we've touched on the subject a little bit already. Is Kong a tragic hero? I don't think he's a hero. I think he's tragic. Yeah, that's just what I was about to say.
1: (laughs) He doesn't really ever do anything. I feel well. I mean, he protects Anne, but at the same time, she wouldn't have been in the danger if he didn't pick her up in the first place.
0: I I see what you mean there, and I bring this up because Alan Dean Foster wrote in an essay that he does think that Kong is a tragic hero, and he called it Darth Vader syndrome, where the audience is rooting for the villain or the antihero. I don't remember ever rooting for Darth Vader. Apparently, some people do. (laughs) Okay, maybe at the redemption part, though. So.
2: What he's the guy who wrote his Mind's Eye, so yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
4: maybe, maybe at the redemption scene in Je- Return of the Jedi, you're sort of rooting okay. for him.
0: Okay,
2: so, I
4: so. but we're not talking about Darth Vader. We're talking about Kong.
2: See, Kong's interesting because like he's a, he's he's fun to watch, partly just because he moves so much action around. But I guess I never myself felt he's still more beast than I don't identify with him in the same way as a. As the other human characters, I don't see, think he ever got to that level for me. See, yeah, that's I interesting.
0: See, that's interesting that you bring that up because, an, but I read another one that said that one of the things that makes Kong as well as the the universal monsters work as well as they do is because there are intrinsically human things in them, and we as the audience latch onto them. And I, I think one of the quotations that I pulled out of that essay was it's, it's something along the lines of "We are Kong, and Kong is us." We see some of ourselves in Kong and we see some of Kong in ourselves. Everyone is Kong. No. <laughs> um, it's like the it's like the end of Godzilla 2000. There's a little bit of Godzilla in all yeah. of us. No. I, again, I do think there is some some human do Kong, but it just
2: I don't know, it's a weird middle area for, for at least my interpretation. I don't know what you guys
4: feel about Kong as a protagonist. Kong's not intelligent enough to be a protagonist, in my mind. He's a beast protecting his property. It's it's his toy, and is his toy, and that's what he's protecting from the other monsters. Except I do think if Kong was simply a monster, I don't think
0: this movie would be as beloved as it is. I think
4: people see more human in
0: him than there is. And I think that comes from the fact that he is an ape, so it's easier to... I think it's easier, it's easier to, to anthropomorphize leave. that.
3: Well, the other thing is he does grow as a character. I mean, there is definitely character growth. However, I mean, normally a hero puts their life on the line out of selfless reasons, and I never really felt like maybe, except for at the end, that it was a ever out of selfless. It was more selfish.
2: Maybe that's the maybe that's the definition that he seems to just still. I mean, he does have humanist character characteristics. But it's like it seems like he's always just reacting on instinct versus making choices.
3: Yes.
0: Yeah. I think where the the reading into this, you know, the the we are Kong, Kong is us, that sort of a thing. I wonder if it plays into the fact that you could read this as unrequited love. Oh, you know, Kong is in love with Anne, but she's just screaming and terrified of him the entire time. Again, I,
1: I think that depends entirely on how much you buy the whole... Um, love aspect of, of Kong. I mean the way the way we've been kind of reading it is is much more animalistic sort of intentions and it, so if you're going at from that perspective uh, I don't know that the unrequited love really makes sense.
2: Okay, philosophical question. Do you think the more you're bought into evolutionary theory and the connection between apes and humans, the more you might feel Kong is
0: a Human. character, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I think you can certainly do that, and like, because, like I said, it's easier to look at apes and anthropomorphize them mm-hmm. because they are so closely related to humans. I think that, because I think the, I know I can't remember the exact number, but I know the the percentage and the difference in DNA between like ninety seven percent, or three percent difference. Yeah, it's like that. not true. very much, which is why it is so easy for us as humans. To identify with apes and why you know, apes show up in a lot of stories and they show up in a lot of films, in particular, yeah. which happens in all kinds of stuff like Congo. you ever read that book, or I don't know, is there
2: a movie on that? There's yes, there that is time. a movie. I don't think that's a great movie from front of memory, but no. the, book, the book was good.
1: Is that a Michael Crichton thing? Yeah, yeah.
2: So yeah, I guess that's my feeling that he's not quite, he doesn't quite have enough free will to call him a tragic hero.
4: I think that's the the determining factor is there's no free will. There's reactions to situations. Behavioralism.
0: I already mentioned, this is related to this discussion, but I mentioned before about the the wall being recycled, repurposed from a Cecil B. DeMille movie about Jesus Christ. Interesting thing. And this doesn't get replicated in any of the remakes because in the script, Kong was supposed to be on display in a cage. But what do we have here? He's on a crossbeam. Yeah, And with his arms out and uh, with uh, shackles to the crossbeam, it looks like a crucifixion. And there are those who look at that and they see that suffering figure in that. And now here he is, he's on display for everyone to see. Others look at that and they read in commentary on slavery and racism because here's this big, essentially a big black man who's shackled and it's being put on display.
2: I guess, uh, to me, that all seems reminiscent of you bring the views you want to the movie and then you lay it on Kong. We are, you know, as opposed to laying the movie. If you just take the movie itself, okay, maybe this, I'm wearing my own preconceptions as well because I can't get away from them. But I think Kong's an interesting character because he is multifaceted. Because he can be brutal, but he can be nice. You know, he can be angry, but he can be gentle. And so he has those human things that make you want to see him as more than he is. But I guess simultaneously, I don't, I don't know. To me, it seems like Kong becomes applicable to put things on versus him actually meaning those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, Carl Denham's speech about, look at this big wild thing that we've enslaved basically and you know, humbled and all this stuff, which I think is an interesting commentary on human society. Yeah, I think I think it could be just as dangerous to place lots of symbolism on Kong that, frankly, doesn't need to be there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and there are those who will look at dialogue like that and they will interpret this film as something of a, a colonialist adventure story, where the the white adventurers are going off into the wilderness and they are taming it and they are bringing things back. Hence the slavery parallels that some draw where they're going off to some foreign land and they're bringing something back and exploiting it. Yeah. I, I can see that a little bit
4: easier rather than it being like some sort of symbol of,
1: I don't know. It, it,
4: it's more organic. Yeah. The, the slavery reference makes a lot more sense than uh gorilla Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, and here's the other thing like, okay. Yeah. There, there could be some symbolism, but at the same time, it's just a story. It is just like Beauty and the Beast is just a story because, you know, they compared it all the time throughout the whole movie. It's just a story. And you may be able to draw to slavery, but at the same time, like, why did they go after the beast? They didn't. They were antagonized to go after the beast.
0: The Beauty and the Beast fairy tale has lasted as long as it has because it has such a deep resonance with people that I'm not even sure necessarily everyone who hears a story gets that. You know, there's a lot of analysis in literary circles having to do with fairy tales and why they have such deep meanings. And same thing with mythology as well. And in a lot in in a lot of ways, this film is an American myth because it has grown to the point of so many things. And it's this it very much is this Convergence of a lot of cultural forces in the United States at the time, not just the Depression, but a lot of literature at the time. You know, there's uh, there were essays I was reading that were comparing this to Edgar Rice Burroughs and Joseph Conrad, and just uh, like this, just this huge convergence of many different things. The guy who wrote the first draft of this screenplay was a British mystery novelist, uh, so a lot of these very interesting sensibilities found their way into this, and the the adventurism that typified the, the director's lives, you know, since they were World War II pilots. And the sorts of things that their people are talking about denim doing, they did in real life. They were the guys who would go to Africa and they would film real animals, wild animals, tigers, whatever, up close. They would put themselves in that close to the danger because they had to get the shots that they wanted.
2: So it seems like, I mean, some of these themes are more a reflection of the lives they lived than any sort of point they're trying to make. What it kind of sounds
0: like. Yeah, I, I do think so. But that's why I said, that's why it's such, for me, it's such pure storytelling yeah. because it's storytelling for the sake of storytelling. And because you are letting story be king, and that's always, if someone asks me my philosophy as a writer, it is always story is king. And
1: our art can imitate life. And it sounds like they were definitely pulling off of things, themes, themes, and ideas that they were familiar with. And, you know, that helps make a story all the richer.
0: That seems like a great note to end on. Uh, So now I think we can move on to the Toku topic and uh, get a little bit more of the cultural zeitgeist that helped create this wonderful movie. Here we are on to the first Toku topic of the Monster Island Film Vault. And in this one, I want to talk about the, the Great Depression. Now, the movie itself really only touches on the Great Depression at the beginning, to some extent, and at the end, to some extent. Obviously, those are the the New York settings, and the Great Depression more or less started in New York City with with the stock exchange. But for the most part, this movie is an escapist fantasy. It was meant to pluck the audience out of its misery for 100 minutes and forget about all of that it's taking them out of the poor new york city and going off to an exotic location where there are dinosaurs and a giant ape. so i'm sure everyone here has probably had history classes in high school and all that so you've heard about the great
4: depression, right? so, we're here, so we're here to talk about what's so great about it.
1: no, oh, what was the so depression great it? again?
2: oh god. <laughs> <laughs>
4: and with that you topped my earlier <laughs> I wasn't expecting the,
0: a better joke in the educational segment. You win, Nick. You win. <laughs> but, for my pride, I lose all the money in the stock market. <laughs> well, yes, you do. Especially if you were around 1929 exactly. in 1929 and uh, getting involved in the stock market. There's a difference between a depression and a recession. From what I read, a depression is a severe long-term economic downturn. And this one, it wasn't just the United States. It actually affected large portions of Europe, so there was this huge domino effect. It hit,
2: ger- hit Germany very hard. For-
0: yeah, 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 it did. And this is the Great Depression that lasted from 1929 to more or less 1939, 1940. It was the longest and deepest and most widespread depression of the 20th century. There were other depressions. They just were not as huge as this one. I want to preface this before we go any further. This is not an economics podcast. I'm trying to give kind of a nice overview of this without getting too much into the weeds about it because there's a lot of information about the Great Depression out there and there's a lot of debatable issues related to the Great Depression. And I don't want to muddy things too much by getting into all of that. The interesting thing is the the depression came about after is anyone here familiar with the term Roaring Twenties? Yes. Yes. So it was Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. Yes. Uh, you think of Great Gatsby? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was actually a decade of tremendous prosperity and cultural edge, particularly in the United States. So I find it interesting that you have that uh, right after World War I, the United States has this long period of prosperity, and then bam, all this happens.
4: Yeah, actually uh before World War 1 for getting into history, uh the United States was more of like a regional power and due to us staying out of that war for so long until the very end and just pro- providing weapons and munitions to con- our allied countries, we end up coming out basically a superpower.
1: Oh, really? Even at at the end of World War 1?
4: Yeah, we ended up coming out at least an economic superpower, and at the end of World War II, we ended up becoming a military superpower as okay, well. Okay. Yeah,
0: it's interesting to look at the history of the United States in the in the 20th century because that was a huge turning point for the uh, for the U.S.
1: Yeah, I knew we were a superpower by the end of World War II. I didn't think about it in terms of economics from World War One, which is interesting.
4: Yeah, we made money off everyone. Has <laughs> <laughs> anyone here ever heard the uh,
0: the name Ben Bernanke? Heard the name. Yeah. He was the the chair of the Federal Reserve from 2006 to 2014. I found this very interesting quotation from him related to the Great Depression. He said, to understand the Great Depression is the holy grail of macroeconomics. To which he went on to say, we do not yet have our hands on the grail by any means. Hmm. His way of saying that, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of different ideas about the Great Depression and how it relates to current economics and just all of that. It's one of the most. It sounds like if you're an economist, you study the Great Depression quite a bit. I am not an economist. If any, if there are any economists listening to this, please feel free to let me know. I feel that like that just goes to show that not even economists
1: understand economy. <laughs> <laughs> like if there's, if we still haven't really figured out what caused the Great Depression, that just like you know. I, I think later?
4: we understand what caused it. We don't understand how we could have gotten out of it faster.
3: Mm.
0: There, I was finding a lot of different ideas about all of
4: that. And like I said, I'm just doing an overview
0: of this. But since we're talking about causes, the actual depression started with a major fall in the U.S. stock prices on September 4th, 1929. The day before this, the Dow Jones peaked at, th- at 381.17, and it never got that high again until November 23rd, 1954. Wow. Now, the Depression started making worldwide news on October 29th, 1929, which is affectionately referred to as Black Tuesday. Has anyone here heard that term before? Yes. yes. It's not when you go shopping for Christmas. No. That's a different Black Day. <laughs> different Black Day. <laughs> yeah. Although, as you uh, as you guys are kind of talking about, and as Mr. Bernanke was bringing up, some argued that the, that the stock market crashes were actually a symptom of the depression and not really the cause. It's just like that's when the fever showed up. Yeah. It's more cowbell. <laughs> more cowbell. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, but and it wasn't just this economic downturn. Things got actually got worse. If you lived in the American heartland, you had to deal with the Dust Bowl. A severe period of drought and storms, and it happened throughout much of the mid-30s, did a number on the farmers who are are out there. 10% of Great Plains Farms ended up changing hands at at the peak of all of this, despite federal assistance, I might add. Since we're talking about causes, there are two primary schools of thought about the cause of the Depression, One comes from the Monetarists and the other one from the Keynesians. Now, according to Wikipedia, Monetarists believe that the Great Depression started as an ordinary recession, but the shrinking of the money supply greatly uh, exacerbated the economic situation, causing a recession to descend into the Great Depression. Keynesians, who are demand-driven, Say, according to Wikipedia, the consensus among demand-driven theorists is that a large-scale loss of confidence led to a sudden reduction in consumption and investment spending. Once panic and deflation set in, many people believed that they could avoid further losses by keeping clear of the markets. Holding money became profitable as prices dropped lower and a given amount of money bought ever more goods, exacerbating the drop in demand. Although some, uh, there is consensus saying that the Federal Reserve could have done something to take care of this. You know, it could have stopped the monetary deflation and the banking collapse, thereby making this you know, not nearly as bad as it was. And there are some other theories, but I'm not, I can, I'm not going to get into into all of that right now. So, Again, check
2: the show notes; you can find some more. So what we're saying is, Anne was not not take, making bad choice to go get on a ship and go somewhere else.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. So I, this is probably going to be the most boring portion of this, since I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you. But I'm hoping that this helps to put things into perspective, what we're dealing with here. In the Great Depression, from 1929 to 1932, worldwide, not just the United States, worldwide GDP dropped 15%. To put this into perspective, the Great Recession that we all experienced, it only dropped one.
1: Hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that does uh, help. That's, that's bad. Yeah, it's helped put things into a better picture.
0: Yeah. Worst day of your life so far. Yeah. The Great Depression devastated rich and poor alike. And here comes some more numbers for you. Personal income, tax revenue, profits, and prices all dropped. International trade declined by 50%. U.S. unemployment skyrocketed to 25%. And in some countries, it was as high as 33. 5,000 banks failed. 2 million now homeless Americans gathered in shanty towns called Hoovervilles. They were named after President Herbert Hoover because he was blamed for the depression. Just goes to show you show you some things never change. Whoever is president at the time of an economic downturn gets the blame for it. For those of you who watched Doctor Who, I was thinking of that of that two-part episode where they went to New York City because in like New York. Yeah. Yeah, where I, I, I'm i pretty sure that that shanty town, I don't think they called it a Hooverville, but I think that's yeah. what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, they show up in Annie. <laughs> oh, Annie the musical? Yeah. yeah there, there's a whole song about who, uh, how much they hate Herbert Hoover. The collapse of New York-based Bank of the United States, which was the fourth largest bank in the U.S. with over $160 million in deposits, and I'm assuming that's in 1933 money. That bank going under is considered the moment when the Depression hit critical mass, and that was in 1930. If only George Bailey was in charge, he could have kept (laughs) it (laughs) open. International trade suffered in large part because, and I didn't know about this until I was doing this research, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which was signed into law by President Hoover in 1930. It raised tariffs on 20,000 U.S. imported goods. It's now seen as protectionist and retaliatory. I remember learning about the that tariff.
2: Yeah, it was
0: a bad deal back then. And yeah. the cities that were hurt the worst by this were actually ones that, as you would expect, were dependent on heavy industry. Construction, actually, in some countries, practically halted. Can you imagine that? Your entire... Nothing gets built for years in your own country. Now, obviously, that wasn't true in the United States. We were still building crazy towers and everything. In fact, you know, all of us here are from Indiana. I actually remember one time learning that the foundation of the Empire State Building, was made from Indiana limestone. So without Indiana, Kong wouldn't have his famous perch. Ta-da! <laughs> You're welcome, world. Come lived in Indiana. It's perfectly fine. There's no upside down. Yeah. But even rural communities suffered because their crop prices, because they're, they're dependent on agriculture, their crop prices plummeted 60%. And consumers cut back their expenditures by 10% for the first half of the 1930s. Interestingly, the year this movie was released, 1933, was actually when most countries started to recover from the Depression. But the U.S. didn't return to pre-Depression GNP numbers for over a decade, and then employment dropped to 15%. It wasn't 25%. It dropped to 15% in 1940. Many say the recovery was caused or accelerated by President Roosevelt's New Deal policies, which were enacted between 1933 and 1936. I know that's something. Everybody here has heard that. We've all heard something about that. It created federal programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Civil Works Administration, the Farm Security Administration, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, and the Social Security Administration. We're all familiar with Social Security, aren't we?
3: Yep. Uh, Maybe not for long. Fun stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And these were all meant to provide support for farmers, the unemployed, youth, and the elderly. It's too much of a can of worms. I don't really want to touch that much more right now. So
4: I recommend doing your own research. Yeah, and no one really wants to fix the problems that that was caused in that decade. <laughs>
2: uh, next, next generation will. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: that's in how it all. Someone will. That's yeah. how it always yeah. works. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah.
0: Some also say that the recovery was caused by. this is a term actually I was not familiar with until now. Reflation, not inflation, reflation, which is the act of stimulating the economy by increasing the money supply or by reducing taxes, seeking to bring the economy, specifically price level, back to the long-term trend, followed by a dip in in the business cycle. Ultimately, though, it's World War II that ended the Depression. Because of the huge economic upturn that came from that. Because hey, somebody's gotta build the war machine. Unfortunately, war is usually good for business. Yeah. According to the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition, not only is war good for business, so is peace. <laughs> Nerd reference. You're welcome. And we, we talked about it a little bit. You know, the, the Great Depression is also the great subject of literature. Probably the most famous example of that would be The Grapes of Wrath. Has anyone here read The Grapes
2: of Wrath? It is on my reading list, like my short I just found the book at the library. I'm like, ah, soon, soon. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you didn't have to read that at Canterbury. Nope, we didn't do that Steinbeck. We did um, *Mice and Men*, but we didn't do *Grapes of Wrath*.
3: Does Veggie Tales count? Yeah, (laughs) Veggie (laughs) Tales
2: version is the only one that we've seen. Yeah, Uh, it was
0: a different kind of wrath that they were
3: talking Uh, about. I
0: don't think Paul Grape counts. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I did find this interesting quotation from *The Grapes of Wrath*, since from Veggie Tales. Oh, unfortunately not. But uh, that. I think it has an interesting description of, you know, it kind of summarizes a lot of the the sentiment about the great depression at the time. And I can't let an episode of this podcast go by without having a great literary quotation and the great owners who must lose their land in, in an upheaval, the great owners with access to history, with eyes to read history and to know the great fact when property accumulates in too few hands, it is taken away. And that companion fact, when a majority of the people are hungry and cold, they will take by force what they need. And the little screaming fact that sounds through all history, repression works only to strengthen and knit the repressed. they like, we need a moment of silence for that to sink in. <laughs> Feels like a very Russian thought. It does sound like a very <laughs> Russian thought, doesn't it? So here's the interesting thing. I mentioned already that 1933, the the year this movie came out, was considered to be kind of the turning point when things started to get better. I found a timeline for the Great Depression, and I was shocked at the sheer amount of stuff related to it that happened in 1933. In fact, a huge portion of it occurred within the one-month cycle that King Kong was being released. The, the film premiered in New York on March 2nd, 1933, and then was released in Los Angeles a couple of weeks later, and then saw a nationwide release on April 7th, and my gosh, did a whole lot of stuff happen in between. So first off, early in 1933, and I didn't know this, Michigan becomes the first state to declare an indefinite bank holiday on February 14th of that year to prevent the collapse of the First National Bank of Detroit and the Guardian National Bank of Commerce, which were the two biggest banks in Detroit. And within a month, there were 38 states that did that. Then, just two days after Kong is unleashed upon the world in New York City, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is inaugurated as president, March 4th. Then, March 6th, he issues Executive Order 2009, which suspends all banking activities for a week. When 30, as I said, all 38 states had already done it. So this was nationwide. And then on March 9th, you had the Emergency Banking Act. This enabled the restructuring of the banking system. Over 4,000 banks with $3.6 billion, again, I'm assuming 1933 money. So just to put that into perspective, in deposits that were deemed irreparably insolvent were closed forever. But by March 15th, banks controlling 90% of the nation's banking activities were back in business. By the end of March, over $1.1 billion in hoarded cash was deposited into the banking system. So think of it like this. As Jimmy told us in the Entertaining Info Dump, King Kong was a giant hit. It made gobs of money at the height of the Depression in the midst of a bunch of banking holidays at a time when... Movie tickets cost between thirty-five and seventy-five cents.
1: So it was a big deal, is what you're saying?
0: Yeah. <laughs> People in the worst economic times probably ever at that point in the in the nation's history were still willing to spend their money on this.
4: I would argue still ever.
0: <laughs> then March twentieth, and this was incredibly controversial. The Economy Act of 1933 is signed into law, and this slashed. million in government salaries and pensions and veterans' benefits. I can see why people would be a wee bit upset. We're finally getting to the end of this cycle. this one-month cycle. Keep in mind, this is happening all within a month. April 5th, you have Executive Order 6102, issued by FDR, which forbid the holding of gold coin bullion and certificates, effective May 1st, 1933. This effectively ended the gold standard for the United States, which had been used for many years before this. And this was at a point when a lot of countries were abandoning it in light of the Depression.
2: I think it was probably good if we didn't have 24 cable news at this point. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been
0: insane. I <laughs>
2: mean, that's, that's a lot of stuff to enact
1: within, like, the first few months of being in office. Yeah.
0: It wasn't even a few months. It was one month.
1: Yeah. First
4: month.
0: Yeah. First month.
2: Was, was this his second term?
0: No, it was, it was his first his
2: first term. First first term. term. Okay.
0: His first term. Okay. Cuz you know, cuz Herbert Hoover was the president at the beginning of the depression. I thought maybe it ended earlier, but no. No, and sense. he FDR, by the way, did win in November by a landslide. Well, you always kick out the incumbent
2: in situations like that.
0: Well, and he also stayed president longer than anybody. He he won four terms. Yep. He was president for 12 years, and he probably would have kept winning if not for the fact that polio killed him. And this is. I just thought this was interesting. Prohibition ended in 1933.
4: Oh, that is interesting.
3: That is interesting. It
0: ended on December 5th with the passing of a new amendment that nullified it. Now there were 18 states that continued with state level prohibition, but on a national scale, it was ended. Federal government's like, hey, we'll give you something. <laughs> <laughs> we have no money? The, but you have some beer. The cynic in <laughs> me wants to think that. FDR is thinking, you know what? This country is not drunk enough for this depression. We need to let them have the booze back. Maybe they just want to tax it. I don't know. Yeah, actually, that was another thing that they did. They, they did tax it. Interestingly, according to Wikipedia, undoing prohibition actually hurt organized crime, allow people to legally consume alcohol and produce alcohol, and it increased state tax revenues. So, uh, Maybe it was one of the many means that they enacted to try to stop the depression. Possibly, makes sense. I mean, makes sense. You drink your worries away and put more tax money in the you know in the revenue.
2: That sounds healthy.
0: I'm sure a lot of people would look at that and say that's a win-win. All of this to say, what bearing does this have on the film? Well, like I said, we we don't really get much of the depression in this. It's mostly at the beginning and the end. The first reference to oppression that we get in this film is where does Denim find Anne?
1: Uh, at a marketplace. Well, after having seen a whole bunch of ladies in, uh, like, a- I
0: guess you missed that part. She's at a women's home shelter.
1: Okay, that's what it was. I knew it was like some sort of shelter food line or something.
0: Yeah, she was at a women's. That was a. That was just a cellar with a fruit stand. It was just right in front of the shelter. Okay. Well, she she was in line though. She just she just tried to steal an apple.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say because I didn't think she wasn't lying.
0: Life was hard for women in the depression, for what I could see, since most of them at the time were housewives, so they were dependent on their husbands. Could only imagine what it was like for unmarried women like our Anne Darrow in this film. A few married women did try to join the the labor force, mostly in white collar light manufacturing work, but there was demand to limit families to one job each. So a lot of times they would lose their jobs if their husbands worked. And rural women had to do things like learn how to tend gardens to have food or to have things to sell. So there's that. And Anne says that she worked as an extra. So she she ha- she is an actress. So she worked as an extra. And then when Denim asked her, well, what happened to you? So well, I guess bad luck. That's probably as close as a direct reference to the Depression as we get in the entire movie. Bad luck. Great euphemism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like... Nobody in this movie is even willing to talk about what's going on. And then this is interesting. This is what I had mentioned before with the attendee I met at G-Fest this year. And I'm sorry, dude, if I forgot your name, please write in and tell me how terrible I am for forgetting your name. Denim assures Anne twice in their conversation, despite the slight creep factor in it, that slight <laughs> that he's on the level and there won't be any funny business. This attendee suggested to me that this could be an oblique reference to prostitution. Oh yeah, I
1: mean, like I said, creep factor all the way. And then I could tell that he was like, no, 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 really, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a pimp. Really, I really, I'm not.
0: Well, and, what, and not in those words, but along those lines. And I even thought that a line that Denham has in his first scene, where he makes this, where they're talking about, oh, you always go to dangerous places. Why do you want to take a woman? to such dangerous places, and what does he say? Well, girls in New York City are in twice as much danger than they would be with me. And I, Again, maybe I'm being tainted by this G-Fest attendees' statement, but I kind of wonder if, again, we, we're getting this other kind of oblique reference. If not to prostitution, certainly to the Depression and you know potential homelessness and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually did... As gross as it might sound, I actually did do a little bit of research into what prostitution was like in the Depression. Because, not surprisingly, this was a field that still continued to thrive even in the economic downturn.
4: This is going to be a happy subject, I can tell already.
0: (laughs) So, interestingly, girls could make $2 for 15 minutes of service. So, theoretically, they're getting $8 an hour. I went to a currency converter to find out how much that is. It's $157.89 in 2019 money. Let that sink in a little bit. I don't want to think about it too much. Yeah. Girls worked at what were called ringer houses, which were part of a chain with a central office that was controlled by a madam and oftentimes mobsters.
1: That makes sense.
0: Which that started to happen in the 20s before them organized crime getting involved with prostitution.
1: When did prohibition start?
0: 1920,
1: early 20s. Early 20s? Yeah. Okay. I I think I tend to think of like mobsters and gangsters bootleggers being a Great Depression thing, but if prohibition ended in 1933, it means it was actually mostly during the Roaring 20s then. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was the
0: prohibition was very much a Roaring 20s sort of a thing. Okay. So, girls could typically have about 10 to 15 clients a day. Uh, But here's the thing. I know this sounds like a lot of money, but it got eaten up by a lot of different things. So, for example, $3 went to to, to regular medical tests. The madams who were running these ringer houses required the girls to get periodic medical tests to test for diseases, obviously. So some of their money had to go to that every month. Then half of their earnings went to the madams for protection since... Any girls who tried to do this independently without going through the madams and the and the ringer houses were much easier to get arrested. Many would also have day jobs as waitresses, usherettes, which I will admit is a word I did not know existed, and, you guessed it, movie extras, just like Anne. Young girls typically worked pri- the prime hours. I guess there's prime shifts, for if you do this sort of work, which is at the time, was 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., while they had the older girls, that was how the article I looked at put it, the older girls take the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., where they would have to deal with the drunks. I know, happy times, right? (laughs) Moving on.
4: Yeah, moving on. The prohibition was
1: 1920. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Uh,
0: Primarily a 20s thing, for sure. So now we skip ahead to the end, and we have all of the rich New York socialites showing up for Carl Denham's show, which I would like to point out what I think is kind of funny about that is Carl Denham is premiering Kong on Broadway and there is now a King Kong Broadway musical. <laughs> this movie predicted its, uh, its franchise's own future. I love it. So uh, we have a rich theater goer who complains that the tickets to Denham's event cost $20. Now, we look at that, we, we don't even bat an eye. Oh, it costs $20 to go do something? That's nothing.
4: I think that's something. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go to a yeah, movie except, that costs
0: $20. Yeah, except Joe, in modern-day money, $20 is $394.72. Yeah,
2: I don't even see that on Broadway. Wait till it's
0: off-Broadway. <laughs> I'll wait for it to
4: show up on YouTube.
0: <laughs> and again, like I said, keep in mind, the rich people are complaining about spending $20. It costs thirty-five to seventy-five cents to see a movie, so that's about six dollars and ninety-one cents to about fourteen eighty.
3: The other thing is, I was while you were talking, I was looking at some of the numbers. Um, average rent per month was twenty dollars, so literally it was a month's rent to go to see, that event. Go see the wow. King Kong. Yeah,
2: we got the show of a lifetime.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> and also what I find hilarious: twenty dollars a ticket, and he said the box office had ten grand. So take that three hundred and ninety-four dollars so we'll round it up $400, and then trying to crunch the numbers in my head. $200,000. Yeah, $200,000 That's what he got. And so he's selling out Carl Denham's giant monster show. Actually, I love that too. Carl Denham's giant monster. So if anyone has any doubts that King Kong is a kaiju, it says it right there, giant monster. His giant monster show is selling out at the height of the Depression.
1: People don't even know what this thing is. They go, (laughs) all the audience is like, "What are we exactly? Are we about to see?" And everyone's like, "I don't know," but Carl Venom said it's awesome.
3: (laughs) Yeah, one of the one of the Rachelies thought it was a movie, didn't realize it wasn't a movie. (laughs) How am I going to see it?
1: (laughs) And those of us who know what's about to happen is like. Oh, you poor lady!
2: You're about to be traumatized <laughs> for life. <laughs> right? And we don't yeah. get to see what happens with all that money because there's probably all kinds of legal fees afterwards. Oh and yeah, then, yeah. I'm surprised that that
4: policeman <laughs> at the end didn't try to arrest Carl Denham. Yeah, there's damage from the en- to the Empire State no, but, Building and. But
2: Denham would he he would countersue all the reporters for not listening to him, uh, and he'd probably win because I don't
3: know, maybe not back at that time. Oh no! Because
2: he—I mean—he's just good at the, the finagling. finagling. yeah.
3: I don't know though. He would probably still have to pay for the damages. Probably.
1: I, I, I mean, I, I imagine New York <laughs> city would have some fines for you know, you just dropped a giant gorilla on our no. sidewalk. No, but right? see,
2: that's good for the—that's good for all the workforces they need
4: jobs for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it's
2: a broken and window theory. You know,
4: they don't—they don't show it, but there's probably a crowd of people looking up at King Kong, and he just dropped on. Probably twenty to fifty of them. You don't know how much, how many people you can feed off King Kong.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: that's also a thing. So you, you've just reduced population, you've increased the food supply, and you've created jobs. <laughs> this is the new everyone. deal. <laughs>
3: I will say on the bright side, this is before the sue happy state. So on the bright side, he wouldn't have gotten sued for emotional. Yeah, harm. there's no
4: emotional damages back then.
3: Yeah. That's
1: it. So uh, maybe, you know, this may have been the start of uh, Denim Tower. (laughs) 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 Oh, I just made everyone sad.
0: (laughs) There are reasons why I I forgot to bring this up earlier. The reason I'm having all of you on letting the listeners know is because you are the, the core group of guest hosts who are coming back. And there are reasons why. And this discussion uh, uh. is part of it because none of you have seen Son of Kong and everything, well, most everything you just talked about gets brought up. <laughs> I am not kidding. I'm, the I'm, I'm spoil this is a little bit of a spoiler, but it starts a month after this movie with Carl Denham being sued by everybody in New York. For then, what just happened. That
2: makes me very happy,
4: actually. <laughs> yeah, the realism coming into the second movie. That that sounds great, because there didn't seem to be a lot of realism on his part, at least acknowledging it, going in. <laughs> hey, I just lost 12 men. Hey, we're going to capture him. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you're the bait. And, and, uh, and then, and, and and then remember, what he, Remember he too. was
0: making promises, too. He's like, you know, I'm going to share all this money with you, boys. You'll be millionaires. We'll all be millionaires.
4: Well... So thousand <laughs> years,
0: exactly. it, it, it's close enough by you know 1933 well, standards.
4: Actually, had it gone more than one night, they probably would have all been. Yeah,
0: years. that's that's the thing. So I guess one thing that we could pull out of this is maybe maybe that depression era mentality was part of Denham's motivation could be. for going to the extreme lengths that he was going. It wasn't just the adventurism. He wants to make money. He wants to make money at the height of the depression.
1: One more question about Carl Denham. Did he later go on to to design his own brand of jeans?
4: (laughs) I have often wondered that, Tim.
0: (laughs) You really want to get into the running for best joke of the podcast, don't you? Why
4: not? Okay. (laughs) Jimmy. Or maybe some stylish jackets.
1: Yes. Yes. Carl (laughs) Denham's Kong jackets. Fit for for a king. Okay, okay.
3: Okay, wait, wait. Does that mean, like, somewhere down the line, the the director or writer who made Grease is also related? <laughs> because, I mean, all I can think of when you're talking about denim and everything is Grease for some reason. <laughs> I totally know that's off topic.
0: Okay, Jimmy, what do you think of all of this? Actually, I can't believe it, but I think he agrees with you. Oh, excellent. I'm a little surprised. Why aren't you this nice to me? Oh, shut up. You and I are going to have a talk after we're done.
3: Because he's just enamored by my beauty. I mean, <laughs> the uh, opinions expressed by this podcast are not necessarily held by the podcast owner or the individuals in the podcast. Or
2: Jimmy. Or
3: Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, yeah we can't forget it's, it's Jimmy. Especially Jimmy. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> these are just derailed trains of thought. Imagine that.
0: <laughs> yes, he's he's glad for your disclaimer.
3: Okay, I mean, I just figure we should state that. And know. he's flattered
0: by the fact that y- you think he's enamored with you, but y- he doesn't chase after married women. I'm sorry.
3: Well, that would probably be a good thing. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a very good thing. I think Joe would approve of that. Yeah, that's, that's all I get. <laughs>
0: okay, enough mucking around, everyone. <laughs> 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 All right, I'm going to get this discussion back on track now since <laughs> Nick and Tim are so fond of derailing things. Uh, we're, we're, we're more fun than the barrel of
2: monkeys. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Ah. And if we don't derail, we, we hijack.
0: So. <laughs> oh, shameless self-promotion and puns. It never. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. All right, but kaiju lovers and listeners... The next episode of the Monster Island Film Vault will actually be a mini-sode with just me and probably Jimmy interrupting me as he always does. And it will be on the Godzilla anime trilogy that's just finished up on Netflix this year. It's been a very divisive thing in the fandom. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Spoiler warning, I'm one of those people who really likes it. You'll get to hear all about it next time on Monster Island Film Vault. But next month... our our main discussion episode which as you heard me spring on poor tim earlier tonight will be on the quickly made sequel to this film that came out just six months later i might add the son of kong where we will see carl denham and captain anglehorn and charlie the chef we didn't talk about charlie the chef i guess we'll have to save that discussion for next time I forgot about him honestly. Yeah. Charlie the cook, Charlie the Chinese cook. We should have talked a little bit more about Charlie the Chinese cook.
3: He was one of my favorite side characters.
0: Yeah. And because a lot of people think he's that his presentation is racist, but you know, we'll save that for the for the <laughs> next episode. Not, not for the time, I don't think. Yeah. So, we'll be bringing uh, you'll be coming back for that to discuss it and you know, I mean, but apparently you've already seen part of it because you predicted all the lawsuits and everything. So,
1: <laughs> and you know, I just realized my ticket to Monster Island is actually a season pass,
0: so that actually explains Oh. That. That, yeah, that makes I sense. forgot I got you that good of a ticket. Actually, didn't I get all of you season passes cuz all of you are coming back in at one point or another? Oh, yeah, I guess I guess mine is. Yeah, that'll be fun. That's yeah, convenient. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. That, I appreciate that. Yeah, He he made sure to get that for you, all of you guys. Oh, thanks. It includes, actually, some free rides with, with the crazy ships that he's got stashed uh, around here.
3: I, I think I'm okay without the rides. <laughs> I'm pretty adventurous, but, you know, I just don't know Jimmy.
1: I thought you meant Brides and the
0: Monsters, and I was going to take a hard pass on that for a second. <laughs> you know, thankfully, thankfully, we've weeded that out of Kong. You know, he's been on the island long enough you know, and had to deal with much larger you know, monsters around here, you know, including his old frenemy, Godzilla. I mean, the, the big reason I'm starting with his filmography is because they got a rematch coming up next year. I'm hoping it's going to be epic. You
4: promised me it's going to be epic, Mr. Kong. Plus, there was all those divorces that he had to initiate with all those brides. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pent-up rage there, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? I'm sure. Well, he uses that towards the, the dinosaurs in this film. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So,
0: in light of that, you've got a lot to look forward to. And I'm looking forward to, to talking about the anime trilogy and with discussing all of this even more with you, Tim. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, listeners. I'll see you next time. Cue credits. Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is MonsterIslandFilmVault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edited by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Ko Otani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!